Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. The Prophet ﷺ, he taught us that on Fridays, from the sunnahs of Fridays, is that we recite Surah Al-Kahf. From the night before, from the Maghrib of the night before, Thursday night, until uh, right before Maghrib on Friday. This is the, one of the sunnahs of Friday that we read Surah Al-Kahf. And you know the surahs in the Qur'an, they have different names. We, we've, uh, we're accustomed to one name because of the mushaf that we have is you know, standard print and everything, but there are many different names of the, the surahs. And in the naming of the chapters, it's another topic, I don't want to talk about that today, but it's very interesting why the ulama or why the Prophet ﷺ named different chapters different things. And usually, usually, not all the time, usually it has to do with one of the main themes or the main stories in that chapter. So the Surah Al-Kahf, the chapter of the cave, the story of the cave, the, the young uh, chaps in, the, in Surah Al-Kahf is, is traditionally how we refer to this entire chapter, even though this is not the only story. And this story, it's worth reflecting on in these brief moments we have on Juma, what lessons we can draw from these people. What do we know about this story? Because the verses in the Qur'an that talk about this story, they're very few. They're not, it's not the entire chapter. The chapter goes on to talk about other things. But what we know from the hadith and what we know from the tafsir is that these were a people that came after the time of Christ Most likely in the Sham region, what we refer to as a Sham, the Levant you know, uh, Palestine, uh, Lebanon, Syria, that area today, that area. And there is this cave, there is a location of this cave attributed to this story in the city of Amman, in, in present-day Jordan. And by this time, as we know the story of the Anbiya and the stories that we are told before the time of the Prophet ﷺ, people had a very fast way of falling out with, from the message that they were given. So they're given a message, it's very clear. You know, the Anbiya, they do all of these unbelievable things. Christ, salam specifically, I mean, look at Christ, salam. He causes the dead to come back to life. He cures the, the lepers. And he doesn't die and he's risen. I mean, all of these unbelievable things happen. What more do you want, right? But people sort of, they kind of, a generation or two, they swerve back into their way of doing things. And it was at one of these low points, maybe, who knows, Allah Alam, a couple of hundred years after Christ salam, in which the people, not only did they disbelieve, but they started adopting a lot of these pagan traditions 
that Christ السلام, you know, came to do away with like all of the Anbiya, including our Prophet So this was like state-leveled, state-sponsored rather, polytheism. So it was coming down from the, from the state, it was coming down from the rulers, that this is what we're going to do with these festivals and these idols and these things. And, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, there are classes in society. I mean, that's another topic, you know, altogether. But at this time, there was this aristocratic class of people that were close to government, close to power, had wealth, so on and so forth. And some of these families, some of the children of these families, these young uh, teenagers maybe, or young adults we'll call them, they didn't like what they saw. And they thought that this was ridiculous. And they had pure belief that there is no false idol, there's no, you know, worship this God on Tuesday and this God on Thursday. And then, you know, like Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he laughed and he cried. They said, why did you laugh and cry? He said, I remembered when I was in Jahiliyyah, I made an idol out of dates and I prayed to it. And then I got hungry, so I ate my idol. <laughs> right? This is, this is the mentality. So these kids, they said, this is ridiculous. We don't believe in this. But they were a minority. And sometimes when you're against the grain, when you're against the trend, when you're against the norm, not only is it not cool to be against the grain and against the, the norm and so on and so forth, against the dominant culture, but the people want to persecute that type of belief. And there's almost like this coercion that you fall in line with sort of the dominant way of speaking. The do and that's how a lot of times we change, we alter the way we speak, we alter the way we think, we alter the way we argue on different social issues. And this was one of those issues that it was not accepted that you believe in monotheism. It's not like, you know, maybe it's, that's okay. No, they didn't like that. There was four. It doesn't matter if you were high class, low class, rich or poor. It didn't matter. They wanted to erase this. So these young adults, they said, this is not going to work. We have to flee. We have to find refuge somewhere to protect us from this. Because if we stay... We're going to be persecuted. They're going to physically harm us. Forget about title and wealth and all of that. They'll physically harm us. And we don't believe in this. You know, when you're young, you're idealistic. A little bit more when you get older, you get a little jaded, right? But these guys, they're the prime of their youth. Like, We're not going to, this is their cause. Their cause is Tawheed. So they flee. And they find this cave. But because they are from known families, it's known that they have fled. And everyone knows that they believe in something other than what society believes in. So they were pursued. So the king or you know, the Caesar, whoever the person is in charge, they pursue them. And they track them down to this cave. And rather than extract them from the cave, see how the thinking is when shaitan plays with the mind? They said, let's block the entrance to the cave and let them starve inside. Not going to drag them out, we're going to make them an example. How could you not believe in what we believe in? You know, that kind of thinking. And it is when the cave is blocked that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes them to have this, you know, it, you know, very long sleep for several centuries, okay? And then they awaken, you know, we know the story, but it's worth summarizing. They awaken, and how do they realize that there's been this passage of time because they were wealthy, they had some money with them because they had sold some of their belongings before they fled. So they said, you know what, I'm really hungry for some reason. Well, obviously you've been sleeping for you know, several hundred years. So they take one of them, you go down, down to town and you know, be, be conspicuous and get us some food. 
And it's when he takes out the money that he realizes, oh, this is not the money that, you know, imagine if you take out your dollars and there's like a pink, you know, bill or something like that or, or Bitcoin or something other that you don't have the, the currency anymore. So they realize what had happened. And this is the story of the people of the cave, right? But what does this story tell us? And I wanted to draw three points and then two lessons, two action lessons for us to learn. The first point is that the story talks about what we understand in, in the language of Islam as hijrah. It talks about how sometimes you have to flee your environment for something better. And in Islam there are two kinds of hijrah. There is hijrah aman, the hijrah that you make, the immigration that you make for safety. You're persecuted here, so you have to go somewhere for safety. Just like the Sahaba when they left Mecca and they went to Abyssinia. They went to Ethiopia to live under the auspices of the Najashi. This was Hijratul Aman, that there was safety involved. They were being persecuted physically in Mecca. Their lives were at risk, their wealth was at risk, you know, so on and so forth. And the, as I said last week, the Muslims, the early Muslims, they were a ragtime community, very weak, disenfranchised. They had no chance of survival. So the Prophet ﷺ told them to go. This was the hijrah of safety. Like today, look at the Syrians that are fleeing for safety. Look at the, the Muslims of Burma. They are fleeing or trying to flee across borders for safety. And this is not just a Muslim thing, but it's a human thing. If you're being persecuted, you know, if someone's hitting you here, you want to go somewhere where you're not going to be, be hit. And then there's the hijrah of faith. The hijrah that you make to preserve your religion. And maybe some of the sahaba that went with the Prophet ﷺ to Medina, they were well established in Mecca. And they left all of their wealth, and they had stature in Mecca. And maybe they were, could have you know, survived. Umar ibn al-Khattab, maybe he could have, عنه, he's a tough guy. Maybe he could have gotten by. Maybe Hamza السلام, he, could have gotten by. But they left out of faith in the message of the Prophet They left to protect their faith. So they, why put up with all of this persecution just because I believe in something that you don't believe in? I'll go somewhere where I'm, I have peace of mind. That kind of mentality. In the story of the cave, we have both at the same time. They're leaving because they are persecuted physically and they are leaving because they want to preserve their faith. So there are these two kinds of hijrah. And the ultimate hijrah, of course, is to leave the haram to the halal. You know, people like ISIS and stuff, they want to reduce hijrah, that you have to come, that's their like propaganda, that's how they're going to bring recruits. They, they erase all of the religion and they only focus on one thing that suits their definition. But there are the, the real hijrah is the hijrah of the heart, that you make hijrah from the haram to the halal. The second thing of this story, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّهُمْ فِتْيَةٌ آمَنُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ وَزِدِنَاهُمْ هُدَى They were a group of guys, they believed, and we increased their guidance, we increased their belief. They took a step, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yanked them to Him. In Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهُ وَيُعَلِّمُكُمُ اللَّهُ Have taqwa of Allah first, and Allah will teach you. Position yourself first correctly, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will take care of the rest. Take care of the rest, meaning Allah takes care of the rest of the relationship between you and Him. Not take care of the rest, meaning you go through life on cruise control. That's, that's something else. That's the world of asbab, the world of causality, that we have to do A and we have to do B to cause C to cause D. This is the sunnah of the world. But Allah will take care of the rest, meaning your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He will take care of it. You take a leap of faith, as we say in our modern language, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will do the rest. 
They believed, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala increased their guidance, increased their faith, protected them in a way that they had not known. They were cornered in the cave, blocked, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes them to not just survive, but to thrive in that environment because they took that step. So this is the second thing that we can glean uh, from this. And the third is that the cave in the story of prophets and in the story of Islam is always the scene of protection, the scene of illumination. The cave is where the Prophet ﷺ received the first revelation, Iqra' bism rabbika alladhi khalaq. And the Prophet ﷺ had secluded himself continually before the revelation. This was his habit, this was his sunnah was to kind of withdraw a little bit, to be able to have a time to focus, time to reflect. And then in that reflection, in that focus, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala illuminates him, the, the max that you can be illuminated, but through revelation. And like the, the, the guys of the cave were protected, and they thrived, and this miracle happened so that we now, we, all these centuries later, we talk about it and we reflect on it. The cave is always the scene of protection, the scene of illumination. It's always a theme that, that you always come back to. Sometimes you literally need to be in a secluded place, which is why Islam has developed this concept of al-khalwa, of isolation, of seclusion as a spiritual practice to follow the sunnah of the Prophet So some people they go in khalwa for you know an afternoon, a day, uh, several days a week, Ramadan, the A'tikaf, the last 10 days of Ramadan, all of these opportunities that we have sort of to isolate ourselves, to unplug, not to divorce life, but to unplug for a little bit. <coughs> you know, it doesn't count when you, you come for A'tikaf, but you know, you're getting all your emails and your phone calls from, I mean, then it is, you kind of defeat the purpose. You've just substituted your office for the mosque. I mean, you have to really literally unplug, you know, and just sort of reflect, read some more Quran, pray some more, to sort of polish. Inna likulli shay'in siqala, the Prophet said, everything has a polish. And the polish of the heart is the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What are the lessons that we can learn from the story of the cave? Knowing about hijrah, talking about taking a step for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and talking about seclusion, isolation as protection. The first lesson, or the first takeaway, is to take that leap of faith. To walk one step, only one step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In a spiritual sense, I'm not talking about physically walking, but to take one step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the way of protecting that which is most important, which is your heart, your soul. To stand guard at the gates of your heart, as Imam al-Ghazali references. Imam al-Ghazali, he says, the heart is like a city. And the senses are like the fortress, the, the doors that enter the city. So stand guard on those doors to see what it is that you are feeding your heart. Because whatever you feed your heart is how you're going to be on the inside. To take one step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In the history of Islam we have, and this is a very big gross oversimplification, we have two systems of taking this step. One system, since we evoke, invoked Imam al-Ghazali, is the Ghazali methodology which is to literally look at all of your senses, your sight, your hearing, your speech, and to see that which is haram in all of those senses and take them away. 
what we call a takhalli, to, to do away with the bad habits, the bad uh, uh, things that we are accustomed to, and to replace them with that which is positive, a takhalli. To not listen to the haram, to listen to the halal. To stop saying, uh, lying for example, and start speaking the truth. These two things, one by one, you, you pick them off one by one. And with the takhalli, and with the tahalli, you have the tajalli. You have the illumination, like in the cave. This is the ghazali way. This is jihad nafs as we call it. The other way, it's a little bit like the fast track. It's a little bit faster than that. It's to take the plunge, not to take a step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but to dive off of the cliff. You know, the way of love and the way of, of uh, uh, you know, the, the, the drunken odes that we have, that we are inherited to. And that needs uh, a guidance from a shaykh. You need somebody to guide you through that because you might take the plunge and actually drown. You know, it's too much. You can't be roomy overnight. Right? But when you read that, it's so beautiful. You say, how, how can I be like that? You need somebody has to kind of show you, navigate the way for you. And that's where we have all of this po- you know, poetry. Uh, you know, the, the wine of the lovers is halal, it's not haram. You, know, you, need, you need somebody to help you guide through that because you might get the wrong idea. But it's like the fast track. Because this is how the Prophet ﷺ was. He was a person that loved humanity. He was a person that was radiant. He was a person that smelled uh, 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 radiant. He looked beautiful. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. You know, everything about him was beautiful. Sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Even his clothes and his sandals and his. It's just to focus on that those issues, those things that make us love the Prophet ﷺ, make us love Allah subhanahu wa taala. And the way of that is through dhikr, is through remembrance. They remember Allah standing and sitting and lying down in all of their modes of life. And they reflect on the heavens and the earth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never asks us to do anything in abundance except dhikrullah. O you who believe, remember Allah a lot. Allah never says give zakah a lot. He never says pray a lot. He never says fast a lot, but he says make dhikr a lot. And in another hadith, he says make dhikr until people say that you are crazy. Because they look at you and they, they see you're, ta- you're talking to yourself all the time. Meaning that all you're doing is, you know, subhanAllah, alhamdulillah, something like that. So these two ways, the ghazali way, we can, and again, this is a gross oversimplification. And the way of love or the way of dhikr, this is the step that you take towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yanks you. Not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala walks, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yanks you to Him, to His presence. Until you have that calm inside, that you are free from that anxiety, that persecution, that which was harming you on the outside. And again, this doesn't mean that you, you, know, you become like a wandering dervish or something, you know, wander through Montgomery County you know, begging. That's not the way of the Prophet But it means inside you are like that. And in this, we are reminded of the hadith. It's a hadith Qudsi. It has some weakness in it, but we use it in these moments. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says on the tongue of the Prophet ﷺ, O child of Adam, I have created you for my worship, so don't fool around. Don't waste your life doing frivolous things. Worship is part of our life. And I have guaranteed for you your sustenance. So don't stress out. Doesn't, doesn't mean don't work. 
It means don't stress out internally. So the cave is on the inside. You still have to do the things that you have to do. You have to study, you have to work, you have to eat, you have to sleep, you have to rest. All of these things you have to try and advance at your position, at your education, so your family, you raise your kids, etc. All of those things. But on the inside you are calm. And that calm comes from taking that step to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Just one step. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yanks you to Him. I mean, it's, it's an unbiased system in our favor. It's not one for one. But you just take a step and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings you to Him. Think of all of the famous awliya, the stories of the saints of Islam, how many of them started off in life like Malik ibn Dinar, who was a drunkard, who didn't pray, who didn't fast. And when you say this, people are shocked because all we know about Malik ibn Dinar, he's one of the greatest saints of Islam. But how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he thought he was lowest in his, in his worldly life, one moment of clarity he had with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala yanked him to him. وَفِرُّ إِلَى Allah. Allah says, flee to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Don't walk, run, sprint, hop, whatever you... فَفِرُّ إِلَى Allah. Go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with everything that you have. All I'm saying is take one step and see what happens. And the second lesson, or the second action item that we have is to remember the cave not as physically we need to find a hole somewhere and sit in it. Because that's not the way of the Prophet ﷺ. But the way of Sayyidina Muhammad ﷺ is to be present in the world fully. But to have the cave or the metaphor of the cave on the inside. Think about everything the Prophet ﷺ did externally in his life. All of the battles that he had to fight. All of the ridicule all of the trash that was thrown on him, the rocks that were thrown on him, being injured in battle, losing his friends, losing his family, all of his children died in his lifetime except Fatima <laughs> All of these outward things. And juxtapose that with all of the hadith we have of the Prophet ﷺ telling us all these beautiful things. Allahu jameelun yuhibbul jamil. Allah is beauty and He loves beauty. In Allah katab al-ihsan ala kulli shay. Allah has written and prescribed perfection on everything. You would think if you looked at the external life of the Prophet ﷺ, all of his hadith would be like stratagem in battle or something like that. But that's not what he left us at all. Over 95% of the hadith are about moral injunctions. Don't lie, be good, be good to your parents, be good to your children, uh, be kind, be generous. 95, over 95% of the hadith, 95% of his speech ﷺ, dealt with those things. Why? Because his cave was on the inside and he lived amongst people in that state. And that's the goal. The goal is to be present, to be active, to be fully engaged, but on the inside to be slightly disengaged with this world and more engaged with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that only happens if you take that step. Allah will give you that increase if you take that step towards him. But all you have to do is take that step and try and, and, and remember that you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose because at the end all of the affairs are with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala.